Our reading today is Psalm 97. You can follow in your leaflet or on the screen. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him, righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all peoples see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who burst in idols worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Well, thanks very much, David, for reading the passage, and thanks also to Matt for leading us in prayers. I'm sure, actually, as you heard the reading, you heard some of the traces of Psalm 95 included in the prayers today, uh, which is where we're going to, uh, Psalm 97, sorry, which is where we're going to spend uh, the next little while. So can I ask you, please, uh, as each week, to grab the insert from the handouts that you were given. Um, there is on one side the Bible passage that was just read for us, and on the reverse, an outline of what I'm going to cover a couple of blanks for you to fill in right down near the bottom as well that you'll find useful to have in front of you. Um, we're coming to the end of, uh, I'm coming to the end of my three weeks with you. It's been a great delight and privilege to be here. I'm actually heading to Trinity Golden Grove next, and so I'll let them know that you've been praying for them. Uh, and uh, it's been great to be able to open these three consecutive Psalms, 95, 96, 97. Let me pray for us as we begin today. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word. Thank you that you have caused it to be written for us and for our salvation. So we pray this morning as we sit under it, we pray that you might speak to us through it and by your Holy Spirit point us towards your Son, our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen. Monarchist or Republican? Hear your choices. A head of state imposed on us from 20,000 kilometres away, or the chance to choose someone so we've got no one to blame when they're a disappointment. I suspect that's the reason why for most people, when you even ask the question, monarchist or republicist, generally we're apathetic. Really, who cares? What difference will it make? 
Psalm 97 is one of the so-called kingship psalms, a psalm that celebrates God's royal rule. You see that there in verse 1, the Lord reigns. Or verse 9, for you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Uh, This theme of kingship or royalty or monarchy, it actually runs throughout this whole section of the book of Psalms. In fact, the two Psalms immediately before and the two Psalms immediately after are on exactly the same theme. So if you look on the screen behind me, uh, Psalm 95 verse 3, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Psalm 96 verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Psalm 98 verse 6, shout for joy before the Lord, the king. And Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, so let the whole earth shake. It's a part of the book that's focusing on this idea of God's kingship. And today I want us to reflect on what it means for God to reign supreme. Uh, Like each of the weeks, I'm going to follow the same structure. We're going to reflect a bit on what Psalm 97 says about what God is like. Then think about how it points us towards Jesus, because Jesus is the fullest revelation of what God is like before concluding with some thoughts about what it might mean for us today. And I trust that, if nothing else, uh, perhaps that's given you confidence to keep reading the Psalms for yourself. So point one on your handout, what Psalm 97 says about God. Well, the big idea, as I said, is that this is a psalm all about God's kingship. Verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Uh, Here is the summary of what God is like. He is king. And yet, the expected response is not one that we instinctively gravitate towards. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Uh, God is king, but as I've said, it's not the response that we would instinctively gravitate towards, that is, to rejoice at God's kingship. And I say that, especially when you consider the suffering in our world, that often is perpetrated by religious fanatics. Look with me at the way in which God's kingship is described in verses 2 through 6. It's actually a pretty terrifying picture of God's throne room. Verse 2, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Verse 3, fire goes before him, consumes his foes on every side. As I thought about those verses this week... um, It reminded me of what we have come to call in recent times, quite literally, the firestorms that U Hills residents are all too familiar with. Verse 4, his lightning lights up the world. There is so much in God's throne room that there is no need for electricity. Or verse 4, the earth sees and trembles. Uh, Again, the picture that comes to mind here, seeing something and trembling, you know, caricatured or stereotypically, someone's knees knocking together with fear at what they are witnessing. So verse 5, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Now that's pretty hot, isn't it? You know what a candle looks like when it melts? This is describing the mountains before the Lord in his awesome majesty. I think the effect of God's kingship being described here, it's on the one hand both utterly enthralling and completely overwhelming. 
If you've ever had the chance to watch The Lord of the Rings, this is a description to me of Mount Doom. You know, those terrifying scenes where you understand that whatever it represents, it is something that you do not take lightly. So I want to ask you today, how do you feel about this graphic image of God's power and might, of what it means for God to reign supreme, to be king of all the earth? If you're here today as someone who's not a believer, uh, then, as Mike welcomed you at the start, we're delighted that you've been able to join us. Actually, one of the reasons why this church conducts its meetings in public, not in private, is because we want to invite people to come and hear about this king whom we serve. But my guess is that if that's the reason you're here today, then at this particular moment in time, your reaction is perhaps appalled at this description of God, maybe revolted. Maybe it's just another example of the typical religious propaganda that's designed to frighten people into submission. Even if you're a Christian, my guess is that at least to some degree, you read passages like this and at least at the minimum, you're a little bit embarrassed. I mean, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? Do you not cringe inwardly at these fire and brimstone images of what God is like? So here's the tension then in verse 1, having described what, the, what it means for the Lord to reign, we're told, let the earth rejoice. Let the earth rejoice. Well, before we get to the reason why, and we'll get there in verses 10 and 11 at the end, see for a moment what Psalm 90 says, says about the way the peoples of the earth do react when they see his glory. There's two reactions, in fact, one in verse 7, one in verse 8. So from verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness, all people see his glory. Verse 7, all who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Verse 8, Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. The first reaction you see in verse 7, and it's obviously one that picks up on the optical metaphors. Instead of seeing God's glory from verse 6, we're told that many continue to worship images. They cast their, their gaze on idols, which are such a pale imitation and broken representation of God. And in fact, it's futile. The psalmist will even call on those other gods themselves to worship the Lord who reigns supreme. But it's the second reaction that perhaps offers some comfort for the first time. Verse 8, Zion hears and rejoices, the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. You notice the reference there in verse 8 to Zion and to the villages of Judah. It's a way of describing God's Old Testament people. We're told that the sound or the sight of God's rule is something that causes them to rejoice, to be glad as they look forward to God's reign. Of course, the question is still why? For what reason do God's people rejoice at God's rule? Well, verse 8, because of your judgments, Lord, because of your judgments. What Psalm 97 is telling us is that when God is seated on his throne, when God rules his world, he will finally right the wrongs that we all grieve. And in that... 
there is great reason for celebration. And we'll come back to that idea in just a moment, but let's see how the psalm concludes. Verses 10 through 12 uh, conclude here by calling God's people to one of two responses which flow from what God is like. So verse 10, let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Two different responses are called for. The first in verses 10 and 11, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Let those who love the Lord hate evil. Now, once again, this is a tricky part of the psalm, I do concede. What does it mean when it says, for those who love the Lord to hate evil? Well, it's not saying that we ought be jubilant. And this is not a bloodthirsty cry for vengeance. This is not calling on God to bring about the indiscriminate slaughter of our enemies. Rather, it's a righteous plea for justice. It's an appeal to the God who reigns supreme to intervene on behalf of his people. And I say that because of verse 10, the last line there. Verse 10, he delivers them from the hands of the wicked. When God delivers his faithful ones, it's from the hands of the wicked. That's why God's judgment is great for his people. That's why God's judgment is awful for those who do them harm. And that's the valid reason given for us to rejoice at God's rule. So what Psalm 97 is doing is reminding us that the deep desire and longing for justice that all of us feel is something that God cares about as well. And this God says that he will make things right. That means, of course, the perpetrators won't escape their day of reckoning. And it means that if you've ever suffered for the sake of Christ then you'll know that the only thing that sustains you is the certainty that even martyrdom is not final, given the Lord's promise to restore and redeem his people. In other words, Psalm 97 is saying God's people will be vindicated, which means we need not be vindictive. Because at the end of the day, We're the ones who know that it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's, of course, why Christians take seriously Jesus' great challenge to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's an idea that we'll come back to in just a moment. The first response, let those who love the Lord hate evil. The second response, here's the last line in Psalm 97, verse 12, rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Did you notice how Psalm 97 begins, uh, sorry, finishes where it began? It finishes with a call to rejoice, which of course is what verse 1 opened with. And in fact, we saw it right there in the middle as well with Zion and the villages of Judah rejoicing. Even though injustice and suffering persist today, still, Psalm 97 calls all peoples of the earth to rejoice at the reign of our King. And so here's my paraphrase of what Psalm 97 is all about. You know, the Lord reigns, let the earth look glad, let the distant shores rejoice. My paraphrase is, let the celebrations go viral. Let the whole earth rejoice at the kingship of our God.
Now in a moment, like in previous weeks, I'm going to get you to just spend a couple of minutes talking with those around you about um, how these responses that Psalm 97 are describing shape us. And so we'll do that in just a moment. Before we do, I thought I came across something a little while ago that I thought I'd show you. Um, it's a video on screen that's going to come up in just a moment. Um, it's kind of self-explanatory, but it's a, it's a very old news clip um, from the closing days of World War II. And, and I was going to say, some of you will recognise it, not because you were there, but you'll have seen it. Okay, so uh, have a look at this on screen. Okay, it's a lovely picture, isn't it, of the overwhelming rejoicing that something has changed and is worthy of such praise. So what I'd like you to do for, for a couple of moments is just in uh, little groups around you. Now, as I said last week, it'd be great if you talk with people who you don't live with um, at this point. You can talk with them later when you go home. But just in little groups around you, you'll see a discussion question there. Of these two responses that I've described here, uh, two responses to God's sovereign rule, Hating evil, rejoicing in the Lord, which do you tend towards? And why? Okay, just a couple of minutes and then I'll call us back together. Over to you. Thanks for taking the time to do that. Psalm 97 is this majestic picture of what it means for God to rule over all the earth and the response that it calls for. It describes a picture of what God is like and why he is worthy of that response from us. Um, for the rest of our time, just very briefly, I want to look at one of the ways in which Psalm 97 points us towards Jesus before inviting us to consider what it means for us today. So you'll see there, point two on your outline, how Psalm 97 points us to Jesus. And for me in this week, as I thought about this passage, um, I couldn't help but actually think of another terrifying mountaintop scene in the Bible. Uh, of a day, actually, like no other, at, Gal at Golgotha, atop Calvary's hill. Psalm 97 reminds me of the crucifixion of the Son of God, of his enthronement, when darkness covers the earth, an earthquake splits the land. Some, like idol worshippers, mock the King of glory, even to death. But at the very end, there is a Roman centurion who, I think, finally understands and rejoices. Matthew 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama samachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. 
Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. Tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. But when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And he exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. As Christians, we understand, we know that in Jesus, God's rule is assured. It's not yet complete, but it is no longer in doubt. And so point three then, what does Psalm 97 ask of us today? What does Psalm 97 ask of us today? Well, three brief suggestions uh, for me to conclude both this talk and this series. Firstly, Psalm 97 urges us to not settle for too small a view of God when he is so much grander. Please don't ever make the mistake of trying to tame God or downplay his awesome power if nothing else it seems to me there's not much point in believing in a second string God amongst the pantheon of gods rather we want to trust in one who can shake the heavens and the earth I for one believe in a God who can make a difference who can do something as magnificent as delivering his faithful ones from the hands of the wicked Second suggestion, please beware of the constant temptation, therefore, to downplay God to make him more palatable when it comes to evangelism or to make him a little less uncomfortable for ourselves. Psalm 97 says that you cannot talk about God's rule or God reigning supreme without also talking about his terrifying and righteous judgment. His kingship makes no sense without it. And so thirdly, and finally, Psalm Psalm 97 tells us that you can be afraid or you can be assured, but you cannot be apathetic. And those are the blanks for you to fill in if you're taking notes. Psalm 97 tells us you can be afraid You can be assured, but you cannot be apathetic. Once again, if you're here today, someone who's not yet a believer, Psalm 97 actually says that you don't have to be afraid of this God, terrifying though he is. You can be assured of his power being exercised for you if you call on him. But you cannot be apathetic. You cannot pretend that this is not important, or that God does not care. And you cannot hide behind excuses like, well, you know what, it doesn't seem like God is doing a great job ruling over his world at the moment, so excuse me if I'm not that thrilled about him or even want to believe that he exists. At the same time, if you're a believer, well, you might be afraid of evangelism, of the potentially hostile reception we might receive. 
but you can also be assured that our God acts for his faithful ones. And so the one thing we cannot be is apathetic because we don't want others to suffer or miss out. We are the ones who know that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think at the end of the day, our challenge in evangelism is to make God's judgment compelling, to not gloss over it, because our family and our friends and our loved ones must see the grim reality of their situation before they will ever contemplate the radical change and solution that the gospel affords. After all, if life is exceptionally good, you'll never see any reason to change. In a moment, I'm going to get you to have a a last discussion, but before we do, for the last time, can you see what's at stake here? The Son of God, who was crucified in shame and raised in glory, has only one great event left to take place, one great event left in God's plan, and that's for every knee to bow in submission and for every tongue to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and that his reign is eternal and never-ending. Soon enough, everyone will do so. Every person will do so, either joyfully rejoicing that our king has come or as a final act of defiance, like a defeated general being led away in chains. I want to say today that I suspect no one who is finally shut out of God's kingdom will ever thank us for not warning them of the danger and not warning them because we're too worried that we might have upset them. Matthew's account of Jesus actually finishes, as you know, in chapter 28, with Jesus declaring that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so his charge is, so make disciples of all nations whilst there is time. Brothers and sisters, the hope we preach is that our God reigns. So come and rejoice and be welcomed into his fold. For a couple of moments, you'll see the discussion question on the screen. I'd love for you to talk again in your little groups. Uh, There should be a question on the screen. How might you persuasively share with the watching world about our God who reigns supreme? How might you persuasively share with the watching world about our God who reigns supreme? Over to you, just a couple of minutes, and then I'll close for us in prayer. Thank you very much. I'll um, call you back together. And uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer in a moment. We're going to sing and after... Uh, actually, yes, we're going to sing. And then there'll be um chance for any questions that you might have about that. But thanks for taking the time to be able to reflect on these things. Let me close this part for us in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, your rule over all the earth. Um, we know that it's good news and that it's something that's worth rejoicing in. We ask that um, you might show the same grace and mercy and kindness to our family and friends, to those around us, that they too might be part of your kingdom. We pray that in this week ahead, uh, you might give us courage and wisdom and patience and grace and all that we need 
to be able to testify to the hope that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.